Content in this episode may be graphic or triggering. Please take care while listening. In 1984, the town of Greeley, Colorado is getting into the Christmas spirit. At a school holiday concert, a 12-year-old Jonelle Matthews sings alongside her classmate. Later that night, she's dropped off to an empty house. By the time her family returns, Janelle has vanished. For more than three and a half decades, Janelle's disappearance was a mystery. Was she taken? Did she run away? Was she even alive? Then, in 2019, Janelle's remains were discovered near the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, only 15 miles from her home. With the discovery came a troubling new question. Had the truth been hiding in plain sight the entire time? Was the man who couldn't stop obsessing over Janelle's disappearance also the person who took her? From Campside Media and Wondery comes season two of Suspect, Vanished in the Snow. Former CNN reporter Ashley Fonz and executive producers Matthew Scher and Eric Benson dig into one of the most mind-bending cold cases in modern history. Welcome back to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast with your host, Detective Chris Anderson and criminal defense attorney Fatima Silva. Today is going to be more of a true crime and less cookie juice because, look, family, it's just way too early for all of that. But we do have our coffee, and you know, of course, Fatima's probably spiked her, so we'll find out. <laughs> well, I guess nobody will ever know, will they? <laughs> um, no, I am not, you know, no drinking for me today. It's actually 10 a.m. here in California. Because, yes, Chris, we're recording a little earlier today because our okay. special guest, she has a little one. And we all know how little ones constantly try to interrupt your work if they are home. You know, it's, it's been a long, long time for me in that. But I guess <laughs> I'll have to get reacquainted with that since some of you may know that I am a new grandfather again. This is number three for us. My, my son has uh, given us a new baby. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is. This is number three for me, but uh, I have all girls. And, you know, look, me being a former cop, you know what I got a lot of. I got a lot of guns and I got a lot of girls. So, you know, it's, it's having, <laughs> a lot of girls, the, so you have a lot of guns. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So having new Sienna Rose, she is a beautiful baby, healthy, and uh, the mother is doing well. And my son is just that you, you got to see your nephew, Fatima. He is just. I can't wait. <laughs> He's a that, new man. that picture you sent of him doing chest to chest. I'm like, oh, we're ready. Such yeah. bad. Yeah. I can't so believe cool. it. Like, CJ's like my nephew, and now we have kids like the same age. What? Yeah, right. <laughs> man, I waited too long <laughs> to get on this. Oh, well, you know. Hey, I'm just... still trying. Everybody knows that one. Right, right, right. <laughs> It's going to happen. Yes. Well, congratulations, Chris. We are so excited for you. And and I'm definitely going to have to make a trip to Alabama and get, you know, snuggle time with the newborn. You got to see I feel like that man. newborn smell. She's, she's adorable. She's adorable. <laughs> and I'm not just saying that just because it's my son that, that he'll produce it. You know, she's she's an adorable <laughs> baby. Congrats to Grandpa and CJ. Right. So our guest today is an investigative journalist, former CNN reporter, and busy mama. Her stories focus on criminal justice and gender issues. Her 2018 CNN investigative story, Destroyed, was nominated for an Emmy. Destroyed revealed that dozens of law enforcement agencies across the United States had destroyed rape kits before the statute of limitations expired to prosecute unsolved sex crimes. The destruction of these kits most that had never been tested for DNA happened following flawed and incomplete investigations. Most recently, she reported, co-wrote, and hosted the podcast Suspect Season 2, Vanished in the Snow, the story of Janelle Matthews. Please welcome to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast, Ashley Fawn. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thank hey, you. welcome, Ashley. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today, and it's very cool. And Fatima and I can interview folks hosting some of our favorite podcasts. It's a treat for us. Thank you so much. And and thanks a lot for listening to Suspect. I'm I'm still like shocked that so many people listen to the show. You never know how something's gonna go when you put it into the world. And I've been really happy. It's cool. Oh, it was yeah. great. It's it is. the storytelling, the way that the story unfolds, it really captivates you. And we listen to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're fans of podcasts. We do a podcast, but also we like to keep up to date with big stories that are out there in the country. And this one just, it was just 
twists and turns. Those are the kind of stories that I love. Like every episode, you're like, whoops, something something new is about to happen. Something else is discovered and you just can't stop listening. You got to get through it. And I told you, I got to a point where I was like, oh, shoot, I have to pay for this at the end. Well, here it goes. I'm, I need to find out. <laughs> I should have I should have given you a discount code or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I think I found out that Amazon Prime members probably could listen for free. And we have that. It's fine. I like Wondery. And now I get to listen to other things. So it works Wonderful. Out. <laughs> good, good, good. So Ashley, in your own words, I gave a brief description in the beginning. But in your own words, tell us what Suspect to Vanish in the Snow is about. Well, I think, you know, the biggest question I was obsessed with answering with this story is how could, uh, and I'm I'm going to assume that people have listened to the show before they listen to this podcast, but. Well, a lot of our folks may not have, so we're not going to give away that ending. We're going to be very careful about that finale and the verdict, but we do want to give people just a little more insight and then they will go and listen for sure afterward. A lot of times they still like to listen to this and then go listen. That's what they say, so. Perfect. Okay, then that's good going forward. I'll start over. So the biggest question I was obsessed with trying to answer was how a man um, in, you know, uh, the same town where Janelle was kidnapped could continually for more than three decades write and say pretty publicly that he knew things about um, what happened to her and not be taken seriously at every turn. So you know, be turned away essentially from law enforcement right away, um, say things to people, you know, in his daily sort of sphere, uh, things like I would get the death penalty if people, if I revealed where Janelle Matthews body is. He was writing, this person was writing very publicly in unrelated civil lawsuit filings uh, that he had intimate knowledge of what happened to her. And you know, as you said in the beginning, no one knew what happened to her. She was kidnapped in 1984. She disappeared in 1984 and her body wasn't found until 2019. But this person is pretty much just jumping up and down like Horshack. If I've got some, you know, older people in our audience who will get that reference <laughs> um, saying, hey, you know, essentially I did it. I know what happened. And I mean, he was just he was just ignored. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking I of found that-, that so maddening. Speaking of 1984, what was it that that drew you to, you know, there are so many cases that you can choose from to go through these cases. What was it that drew you to this case in small town Colorado? You know, it wasn't necessarily the year that this happened, but it was kind of what I I just outlined. I mean, I'm talking to a former cop and a lawyer, so you guys will get this. But when... um, when this person that we're talking about, to keep it vague, was eventually tracked down and taken seriously by law enforcement, I wanted to look at this person's indictment. And it was, I mean, I've read hundreds of indictments over the years. I mean, I'm 46 years old. I feel like I've been covering law enforcement for 10,000 years. And I looked, <laughs> yeah, I I read this indictment and it was just a laundry list of all the times that he had tried to what appeared to me, and I, I think this bore out in the story, had tried to confess, but wasn't taken seriously. And I was like, oh, there's a hell of a story here. So I just started digging. Mm-hmm. I actually have a little clip I'd like to play about what you said about this. So I'm just going to play it here. This is a story about obsession. My own, sure. So I am working on a podcast about the Janelle Matthews case. I know you know about that case, right? I assume you're probably well-versed. I thought I'd try you one last time. But also the obsession of a community that kept pushing to find Janelle, to get her name into the national spotlight, and all the way to the White House. For example, I learned about Janelle Matthews of Greeley, Colorado, who would have celebrated a happy 13th birthday with her family just last month. And it's about the obsessions of a self-described true crime junkie, a man who had started talking about the Janelle Matthews case just a few days after police responded to a distress call from her home. And over the next 35 years, he kept talking and talking. It was just me trying to be a big man in the case. He's a busybody. He gets himself in the middle of murder cases. But that doesn't necessarily mean 
he actually was involved in them. People are like, oh, he's just crazy and he's just he's he's just a dingbat or or whatever else and he's he's harmless. He wouldn't hurt anybody. He's such a good liar that he can convince the juror that he wasn't involved. So, you know, he's a liar. He is. He's a good one. I turn around and I said, you're going to be arrested for obstructing if you don't get back in your car. And he says, don't fuck with me, Officer Edgerton. I've buried more people than you'll know. When you shot Janelle Matthews in the forehead, was she begging for her life? Never happened. That is intense. So you are drawn to this case because mainly the suspect. Yeah, I was I was drawn to that case and and it did have um something to do with it had a lot to do with Janelle as well. So when her body was found in 2019, I had just become a mother for the first time and this was at a time when I was um still on my maternity leave and uh you know, man, when you have a newborn, all you're doing when they're asleep is kind of looking at your phone if they're in your arms. So I, I saw that news and I thought, well, this is this is really interesting. I mean, of course, I've done plenty of stories, sadly, about kids who've been hurt. Um, I don't know. It just lands differently when you become a parent. It did for me when I was looking at my daughter and thinking about what it was like for these parents, if for Janelle's sister to have no answers about what happened to her. I mean, in 1984... It was just such a different time now. We're kind of used to stories about kids disappearing, uh, you know, Amber Alerts and so forth. But in 84, this was a totally new thing, and it was terrorizing. So you're a new mom at home in 2019. I think we were new moms around the same time because my son was born January 2019. Um, yes. So... I can definitely relate to just sitting around and you're watching a lot of TV and, you know, on your phone because you're, you have to sit there as you're trying to figure out how this kid sleeps and what's going to keep them sleeping. And then we hit the road. Gosh, I mean, my son was, I think, three months and we hit the road for reasonable doubt, which was very intense to film with a newborn. I don't recommend it at all to anyone taking them on the road. You but made I'm it look so easy. Wow, though. that's amazing oh, no. that you did that. It, I don't know who convinced me, but they were like, "Well, it's going to be easier if they're a newborn rather than later." And that is not true. It was the hardest season by far. But as far as a new mom and getting into a case, you're living where when you when you discover this case? Yeah, so I was living in Atlanta at the time, and I kind of put it in my back pocket when her body was found. I, I was drawn to the story, but I didn't really, yeah, there were, there wouldn't be an arrest in the case for some time. So I kind of tucked it away and I wasn't sure what I was going to do, if anything with it. But then there, when there was an arrest in 2020, and as I said, I, I looked at the indictment, I thought, oh, wow, this is a really complex, interesting story. And because I've covered law enforcement for so many years, I just thought, okay, where's who who messed up? Who messed up all those years ago? Or at least why didn't people notice that he was talking about her case or he was writing about her case? And some of the larger questions I would kind of get into once I started to understand this person was, did he not look like what we think danger looks like? Mm-hmm. What were the assumptions made about him? Um you know, if he had looked differently, he's a little nerdy looking, frankly, and older. Um, if he looked differently, would he have been treated differently? I, I don't know. And I'm not just talking about his race. He happens to be a ca- Caucasian, but mm-hmm. he was blown off uh, because he was, in the words of a police investigator who tried to answer my question when I asked why, he said, oh, everybody thought that guy was just the town kook. Which is very unsatisfying. I mean, yeah, right. don't kooks kidnap children? Don't the right. mentally unstable? Don't, it still is, it doesn't make any sense to me to this day. Yeah. So you had to travel then to Colorado to interview a lot of these folks. Absolutely. I mean, I love in the field reporting as, I mean, you do too. You know, there's, you can't do these stories 
over the phone, you have to connect. And I'm a big believer in looking at people, you know, face to face and trying to understand how they live. Mm-hmm. It's how much time did you spend in Colorado? I mean, all told, I was back and forth. Gosh, I don't know. I guess it was probably like like two months, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, you know, I wasn't gone the entire time because okay. I think my husband would have killed me if, <laughs> you know, I'd have been like, hey, you're a single parent for two months. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, no, it was a lot of back and forth and us, you know, covering the trial. So. So how long did it take you from the research to the interviews to completing the podcast? Well, um, so from this person's arrest in 2020, just on my own time, that was when I was still working for CNN and I just started, I I want to know everything about this guy. So I think I must've filed 20 public records requests at every law enforcement, sent it to every law enforcement agency he ever, you know, in any town he ever lived in. And then I did a complete wash on him in terms of lawsuits that he either filed or was named in. And by the time I had a stack of really incredible material, um, I knew for certain that there was a story. And I called Jennifer, who was Janelle's older sister, and knew that it was really critical that the family of Janelle be on board with whatever story we tell, because I need every story I tell to be a victim forward story. These people cannot be reduced. When I say victim forward, I shouldn't even use the word victim. Like these people who are hurt, they cannot be defined by their murder or their kidnapping or their sexual assault. Right. Mm. That's true. That is true. Janelle's story is so tragic and not only because her life was senselessly taken, but also because for three and a half decades, her family does not have any peace. They don't know if she's alive or dead. And as a mother, that nightmare honestly seems more difficult than having to just bury your child from the start, right? And there's this point in the podcast that her sister says, at night when you don't know they're dead, your mind goes to dark places. And I just thought, my mind would go to some real, I get that. That yeah. is scarier than at least knowing, okay, my daughter's gone, but now she's at peace and I don't have to wonder about her. I yeah. can I can begin my grieving process, right? Because as a parent, that grieving process is heavy, but they don't know for three and a half decades. Right. It's It's absolutely torturous. And with the Matthews, what helped them was that they're deeply Christian and they leaned on their faith to believe that whatever happened to Janelle, and they came to understand pretty quickly that she wasn't coming back. I mean, when she was gone for 10 years, they had a memorial as if she had died. Um, so anyway, they really relied on God and their faith to say to themselves, okay, wherever Janelle is, she's in a, a peaceful mm-hmm. place. That um, It does. I mean, I'm not particularly religious and, you know, I, I just, who knows, you can never put yourself in that position because you have no mm-hmm. idea how you would feel. But it's just so heartbreaking to listen to Jennifer say that she could hear her mom crying through the vents you know, at night. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be rough. I've worked a lot of cases. I've worked a lot of murder cases and I've worked a lot of, about quite a few missing persons cases. And one thing that, that the families say to me, I've said to me a lot of times, it's just the not knowing is the worst or just not knowing what happened to your child or if they're still alive and if they're suffering even years, years after they went missing. It, it's, it's the finality of it. And, um, that always, and they always talk about it. But as a new mom yourself, that, that's got to be heavy for you to work on that case uh, during that time. Am I correct? Yeah, it was it was heavy, but it was also um, some people have asked, oh, since you became a do these stories about children who are hurt. And actually, I feel more motivated to do these yeah. stories because the whole purpose of investigative journalism is to try to figure out either what went wrong or what is still going wrong. And if you can expose it, can you 
help people? Can mm -hmm. you perhaps identify a problem on a big scale? And sometimes it comes down to like publicly embarrassing um, an institution for failing right. and it forces them to change. So I actually feel way more motivated now that I'm a parent to do these stories about kids who have been hurt. And mm -hmm. the system or departments, law enforcement fail them. Right, exactly. Whether it's an individual who has hurt them, you know, which is the case with suspect, or it's an institution that has failed them with some of the other investigative projects that I've done. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I think most, most investigative journalists are motivated by outrage. We're just, you know, and it's kind of like a little bit of an arrogant thing to think, oh, well, uh, if I can expose this, I'll fix it. And I've learned. Uh, Chris and I can relate because. Yeah. That's reasonable right. doubt for us. That's what right. motivates us is mm -hmm. the outrage of the justice system and how they got it wrong, whether it's law enforcement or the prosecutor or the defense attorney, how somebody's been failed in our system and now there's an innocent person behind bars. And mm -hmm. it is difficult to change. Um, we have a whole show about it. And then we help families and give them attorneys or investigators to help afterwards. And the judicial process is slow and you don't see change overnight, but sometimes just talking about it, just exposing it. We've had a lot of people who we're still working on the exoneration side. They're still fighting to get their name cleared, but they finally were paroled mm -hmm. after being denied parole for many, many years. The show comes out and now they're paroled. So there's something to just exposing the truth to the public. We've had cases where we knew the person was probably rightfully convicted, but the investigation portion was so bad. It was so, it was done so wrong. And then you empathize, even though this person has been, you know, rightfully convicted, they are where they belong. You empathize with that because that could have been someone else. That could have been that, that same, you take that same investigation and put an innocent person in that place. And then that innocent person could have been convicted under those same circumstances. And that's not what our criminal justice system is built on. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. So that's the reason why I love doing reasonable doubt so much. And that's the reason why even after reasonable doubt, I still don't have a problem with calling out things that went wrong in my profession, because I know that we can fix these problems, but the only way we can fix them is if we expose them. You know, and I'm, it's so great to hear you say that because I know so many wonderful um, detectives and police officers who just like journalists need to be held accountable when we make mistakes. They're very much on board with doing the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody, I think, goes into these professions that are underpaid, that are very difficult on you emotionally. When I was younger, so it's 1988, so I'm six years old. And I remember a little girl by the name of Michaela Garrett, who was just a little older than I was. And she was kidnapped from a store right in the city next to where I lived and where I grew up. And we would pass that store every single day because my cousin lived right down the street. And we would walk to that store as kids, as just us girls, you know, ages 6, 10, 12, just would walk together with our bikes. And Michaela was at the store one day with a friend. And um, the suspect in this case basically moved her bike closer to his car. So that when she came out and went to get her bike, he just threw her in the car. And there was nothing, you know, that, that her little friend could do. And they saw her just drive away and she's never been found since. And one of the saddest things is still in that city, which is Hayward, California. If you drive around that area throughout the years, you would just see the mom about town. And I remember even in my younger years and teen years feeling so sad for her, not ever knowing what happened to her daughter. And Till today, they've, they've never found Michaela's remains. Different people have confessed to her murder, and they don't really know who actually committed the kidnapping and, and murdered her, but they just never have that peace. And that, that's something that has stayed with me. It's like, gosh, I'm in my 40s now, but I definitely still remember Michaela Garrett's case. That's how much it affects you. Or even Polly Class. That was when I was younger, too. And nowadays, I fear our kids... They grow up just hearing about it all the time. They're just going to grow up like, oh, another person was taken, another person missing. It's just the reality. But it wasn't the reality for us. We were able to ride our bikes to the corner stores and our moms weren't that paranoid, right? Um, but after that, of course, it was different. 
it changed so much for those kids who were Janelle's peers back then. You know, Greeley, Colorado was a place where you could go out. You could do exactly what you're talking about. Just stay out till dusk. Nobody was watching them. But when I interviewed her friends who are now close to, to 50, uh, they are still really tr understandably very traumatized by this. It, it was such a a rush of a relief and release for them when there was an arrest in the case. They described sort of having very, you know, clenched, tense feelings for decades that they weren't even really in touch with until there was an arrest, something that promised any way to bring them some finality. But their childhoods were completely changed overnight. I mean, when she disappeared, parents started making sure that, you know, their kids did not go outside to play by themselves. It was, it was a small community. So there's a lot of communication between parents and nobody was left out of sight. Did people ever think that maybe Janelle just ran away? I mean, you described her. I love the way you described her because it sounds a lot like me when I was younger. Opinionated and spunky. She was a girl with a strong personality. Did anybody, did the town seem to think, okay, this girl was taken? Or were people like, well, maybe she just ran away? So there were moments when I was interviewing people when they described her as loud, which I thought was really, frankly, sort of offensive, honestly. I mean, we wouldn't describe a boy as loud. And um, why shouldn't she have a big personality? Why shouldn't she speak up for herself and, you know, say what she thinks? Um, it just, it was, it was subtle, but, you know, I really picked up on it. And you said that you thought of yourself that way. I, I oh, was yeah, totally. I was described as loud all the time. I still, <laughs> yeah, and me too. I mean, hey, we have owned it. <laughs> I've owned it now. Like this, this is what's gotten me here in my life. It is what it is. I've tried to be the quieter, especially growing up in church. My mom would always say, meek and mild. And I think that is not me. Nope. I've tried. Yeah. I mean, let's celebrate her for the confidence that she had, her natural right. confidence, frankly. Um, so, yeah, some people's answer your question about whether they thought she had run away. I think the initial investigation and sweep of her house that night um, I'm not just, I'm not saying this, this is the detective who would eventually solve the case, said that it looked like maybe they were treating it as a runaway. And so they didn't do everything they could have done to secure the crime scene or take the kind of correct photographs that they could have taken. But it became evident very quickly that she didn't run away. I mean, this is a kid who disappeared five days before Christmas. Uh, she loved Christmas. Why would a kid leave five days before they're about mm -hmm. to get presents? Her shoes were still there. I mean, she would have probably put her shoes on if she decided to go, you know, tromping off on December 20th, 1984 in Colorado or her jacket for that matter. So it, it didn't make sense that she ran away. That's right. It's like she came home, she took off her jacket, she took off her shoes and suddenly she was gone. She wasn't home long. She wasn't home long at all. She was dropped off around 8.15 or 8.30. Um, again, that the house was empty. Her dad was at her older sister's basketball game and her mother had flown out of town that day to see some relatives. So she wasn't going to be home for long, um, at all. And she, uh, took a phone call. We know for sure around 830 ish from a teacher who needed a sub the next day. Her father was a school principal, so that was routine for teachers to call. So she took that message. And then we know that by the time 930 rolled around, her father came home and walked in the house, kind of shouted, Janelle, didn't get an answer. He kind of piddled around for a little bit. Uh, again, like today, maybe if you come home and you can't find your kid in the house, it's a little bit more of a panic. Where are they? I'm going to call the cops immediately. Back then, it's just that just wasn't really the mentality. And so he starts calling around to all of her, you know, friends. Do you know where she is? And like a, a pretty long time, you know, close to two hours go by before he calls the cops. Yeah, you know, as an investigator, obviously everyone is a suspect, especially those close family members until they're actually ruled out. But. Janelle's dad seemed to be a suspect for many, many years, especially to the general public. 
Was there more that wasn't revealed in the podcast about their relationship? I mean, we know she was adopted. Were they close? Yeah, I mean, as far as, so I want to be clear, Jim Matthews could not talk to me for the podcast because I hope I'm not giving too much away, but there was a mistrial. And as a result, this was a huge reporting challenge because every witness, the family members, the detectives, the DA, the defense attorney were all like, yeah, we're going to talk to you as soon as this trial is over. We're good to go. Mm -hmm. But when the mistrial happened, right, you're not going to get anybody because people are locked down for that next trial. Now, I, I overcame that and I did get people to talk to me who were witnesses in the second trial. Um, but to answer your question about Jim Matthews, he was considered a suspect up until the time her body was found because the timeline wouldn't have worked for him to kill her, drive out to the location, bury her, and then get home in time by the time that his other daughter came home. So there's nothing, there's nothing that we held back in terms of what we knew about his relationship with Janelle. Um, we know that she had a really good relationship um, mm. with her parents. And that was not coming just from Jennifer. That came from a lot of people that I interviewed. It's sad that he wasn't cleared for that many years. But he knew the truth. He knows it. I, I think, honestly, a lot of this comes down to some pretty serious law enforcement failings um, from the beginning because the person who was eventually arrested, it went to law enforcement just weeks after she disappeared saying, hey, I know something, and he was blown off. So mm. that's another thing that interested me in this story is so, so many missed opportunities just to do basic investigative work. Mm. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's this crushing part of the story, and this is, I don't know why this part really stays with me, maybe just as a mom, but where Janelle's birth mother decides to finally reach out to the family who adopted her daughter many years later because Janelle's mother had to give her up for adoption because she was very young. Um, and so she was, it sounds like, forced to give her up. So she finally reaches this point in life where she decides, I'm going to find the family and see if I can reconnect with my daughter, reunite with her. And it's so sad because at that point, the Matthews family has to break the devastating news to Janelle's birth mother that she's missing, that the daughter is missing and they don't know where she is. And then she has to find out that she was actually under surveillance for some time uh, for good reason, right? Maybe the birth mother came and took her daughter back, um, but she had no idea. She was, she was under surveillance after Janelle goes missing, but nobody ever tells her that Janelle's missing. And that was really sad. Beth? That part of the story was so gripping for me because as an adoptive mom, um, there isn't really a day that goes by that I don't think about my daughter's birth mother and the um, incredible love that she demonstrated by placing my daughter for adoption. And in the adoption world, we use that language placing rather than giving up because mm -hmm. we never want, because it no one's. No one wants to give up their child. They're making a decision to give the child to a family that they know will have, you know, give them perhaps a better life. And so I was absolutely thinking about my daughter's birth mother when I was thinking about interviewing Terry Martinez's Janelle's birth mother. And this duality of the mothers with the birth mother reaching out to Gloria, the adoptive mother. And Gloria felt, what if this woman judges me? I did not, you know, is this my fault for taking, it's not rational. It's not Gloria's fault that Janelle was kidnapped. But did I not do my job as a mother to protect Janelle? And then you've got the birth mother and all of her anticipation of being judged for placing Janelle. But ultimately, they came together and you've ha they forged this bond. And that just seems so moving and powerful to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. And, and the way they stayed connected and kind of helped one another grieve and heal through this. They needed one another. I'm sure that brought Janelle's adoptive mother and her birth mother some peace and knowing they were both experiencing the same pain. 
And I did have occasion to very briefly, during the trial, the rules were you were not supposed to approach witnesses, of course. So I was very mindful of that. Uh, but at one point I was walking past Gloria, who was sitting down, and she she knew that I had been talking to Jennifer, you know, before the trial, not during the trial. And she grabbed my hand and she just kind of patted it. And I, and she kind of was kind of, motioning for me to sit down next to her. And I was really scared. I was like, I don't want to interfere. I don't get, get in trouble with the judge. Uh, but I did sit down and I kept it, the conversation only about mothering. And she asked me a lot about my daughter. She gave me some advice and she talked about what it was like being an adoptive mother. And then she hugged me. And I, I honestly, I could cry just remembering it, but she, that's the kind of person Gloria Matthews is. Just, she's the mom who hugs. Mm -hmm. She's a loving person and her pain is so profound. Yeah, she sounds special. She really does. Very special woman. So at one point, Ashley, please seem to have a pretty decent lead in this case. And, and this is where my frustration starts. It's also early on, there's one suspect, but he's not really followed up on. Was this just small town mistakes or small town favors? What do you think? This is the neighbor's son who was there that night. And he's got a little bit of a record and reputation. And the neighbor had said, yeah, my son was here. He was sitting in the car. He was, uh, as he was leaving, he was staring across the street at something and then he's gone and doesn't show up until hours later at his house, his roommates say. So an obvious suspect, right? Somebody who could be glaring into the home of the Matthews and, and see Janelle. And, but this isn't even followed up on until years later, right? Right. And so just to be clear on the timeline, so Janelle disappears in 84. Um, and so around that time, as you said, there is a... The police interview uh, the adult son of a woman who lives across the street. Um, you asked about favor. I have I have no indication at all that there was, you know, anything untoward or corrupt as to why there wasn't a follow up in in really pursuing interviewing this person. Um, I can say that the detective who ultimately solved the case in 2019. Uh, was very pointed in his criticisms of the way law enforcement conducted themselves in the 80s and, you know, up until sort of he got the case around 2014, 2015. He just said, you know, there would be one officer interviewing somebody and then on their a report would say, see another officer's notes for the interview. And then you'd try to track down the other officer's notes, and then it would be like, see the other officer's notes. for it. So I think it was about sloppiness, and it wasn't as if somebody had purposely not talked to that particular suspect. But eventually, in 1989, so, so the Janelle Matthews case goes cold pretty quickly in 85, 86, and it's like a hot potato at the Greeley Police Department. It's like passed to whatever detective happens to inherit it. And they take their swing. And then in 1989, uh, Detective Keith Olson gets a hold of it and reads, you know, a volume of reports and then sees that needle in the haystack, sees this, mm -hmm. you know, guy who was never followed up on. And he he does that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've, we've seen reports like that, huh, Chris? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we know it's kind of the, uh, <clears throat> we almost call it the kick the can type of form of investigating, let somebody else do it. You know what I'm saying? Somebody else, get somebody else to do it. Uh, and, but this guy seemed like a very strong lead. He, what, was it frustrating to discover that he had died before any more evidence or charges could full, come full? That person died in 2008 and he was pulled in for questioning in 89. And the reason why he was tantalizing was because there were footprints in the snow outside of the Matthews house. And that's, not necessarily what was so interesting, but there was, it looked like the footprints had been obscured with a rake from the Matthews garage. Mm -hmm. And so this other, the suspect had said early on, again, right when the investigation was starting, that he knew that a rake had been used. But the police, the reason why this set off alarm bells to 
1989 investigator was that the police had that was hold back evidence or evidence they had not shared with the public. Mm. That's completely debatable. I mean, you can imagine the kind of commotion outside of the Matthews house, right, in 1984. Girl goes missing. There's cop cars everywhere. There's neighbors probably outside looking around. Uh, it's completely understandable that somebody would just look in the yard and be like, oh, that looks like rake marks. Yeah. Um, the idea or that just that somebody that. noticed that or, or, or an officer sends it to another officer and the neighbors and they're being nosy and listening. The notion that that was highly protected holdback evidence to me seemed not entirely believable. Well, and then we know that we'll stick to not saying his name here so nobody yeah. can Google him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, but we know then that another suspect comes into the picture and you've talked a bit about him. He ends up being tried for this and we won't talk about the outcome of that. I think there are actually are a few trials just so that everybody knows you're going to want to go and listen and find out you know, what happened in these trials. But the reason he becomes a suspect is because he has been coming forward for years saying things. But he's really not ending up on anybody's radar. Nobody's doing anything. So you have said he's kind of making these little confessions and saying things here and there. And even his wife comes forward and sends a package to the department in Greeley, Colorado, to let them know um, what she knows and what was suspicious to her around the time that Janelle goes missing about her, you know, her husband's behavior. But nothing happens for years. And we know that he's now living in another state. He's not in Colorado. But it seems like nobody cares to follow up on this person. That exactly. is what's very frustrating. Well, exactly. Because, you know, he's he is writing, I mean, for pages and pages and pages in these sort of non sequitur ways and these civil lawsuits. He's somebody who loved to sue anybody who looked at him twice. He always thought people were out to get him. And so he's writing about Janelle in these civil filings, which, you know, other people have eyes on. There are other lawyers, you know, looking at these civil filings that are unrelated to Janelle Matthews. So I'm thinking, OK, well, don't you think this is unusual? Or again, are you just blowing him off as a kook? But more than that, you know, this this person was writing the Greeley East office for several years saying, hey, hey, me, me, me. Can you talk to me? Janelle. Yeah. Let, yeah. And that's the thing. He kept saying, I want a deal. I want immunity. I mean, why he went to a prosecutor, the chief prosecutor in the area where he was living in another state and said to her, uh, hey, I know something about the Janelle Matthews case. This was the early 90s. Um, can you work out yeah, a deal for me? She was really busy and just kind of like, I'm not dealing with it. Right. And, and, and I guess in her defense, when you do stories that are long ago, you have to think about them in the context and the culture in which they happen. So in 94, it it wasn't easy for her to just, she couldn't just jump on Google and Google Janelle Matthews. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could all say, oh, well, you know, maybe she should have expressed a little more interest than she did. But that was her choice because this person had such a reputation as being somebody who was nutty, she thought, He's just, this is just another nutty things he's doing. It's almost like if you actually committed the crime in the case, you hear about these stories where it's the person that's in there. They're like helping. They're asking, please, what else can I do? And I received this tip. You've heard these stories before. They stay close to law enforcement. They stay visible in the community a lot of times. And they're acting like they want to be helpful. And then you find out it was them. Because if you're in plain sight, nobody's going to think it was you. They're going to think you're going to want to hide. You never want anybody to know. And so I could see how some people just thought this guy just wants attention. He's just some loner, weird, quirky guy who just wants some attention and he doesn't really have any information. But as law enforcement, you have to take that serious. And he definitely wanted attention. It felt like a catch me if you can, because he would go on to run for the governor of Idaho twice and run for sheriff. Um, he had on his one of his political websites, he talked about his fascination with Superman because no one would ever guess that Clark Kent was Superman. Could someone have two identities and no one ever guess what the other one is? Um, so, you know, he had one public face. And this is Idaho. I, I can say this comfortably because I talked to a lot of experts in Idaho politics. 
because my first question was, don't you background people who run for governor? Um, (laughs) A simple check on his filings in court would have turned up all of these pages and pages of reference to Janelle Matthews. I mean, it was just sitting there for any reporter to find. And he would always sort of poke at law enforcement during his political runs. He was just daring somebody. He yeah, was, he was daring. very strong on crime. That, there was so much iron makes. But this is one thing that a lot of people don't realize is departments across the country, they don't there's a certain murderer in your state unless it's making the news or it's a serial killer case departments aren't really talking to one another in different states you have national database systems dna fingerprinting things of that nature but this is how things slip through the cracks so you can't really expect unless you're coming forward and trying to do the work and reach out to each department that they're just going to discover this right Yes. And so this person's wife at great risk to herself because he was physically abusive. She sort of did her own detective work because she was growing more and more concerned that he was involved with Janelle's disappearance. So she went to a law enforcement agency in Idaho and was listened to by a detective there uh, quite intently. And he did his job. He took all the material that she gave him and passed it along. Uh, to the Greeley Police Department, followed up with a phone call, he said, to the Greeley Police Department saying, look, she's come to us with this. Mm -hmm. This is compelling. It's not our jurisdiction. Here you go. And she didn't hear anything from Greeley Police, which she expected to. You'd logically expect some sort of connect. And so she said that she called the Greeley Police Department, got the investigator in charge of the Janelle Matthews case on the line, and his response to her was, lady, you should see my desk. You know, it's, it's tough. It's tough as an investigator because in departments like mine, you know, we're not the largest department by far, but we have a pretty large team for a city the size of ours. But we always tried to make sure we stayed in connection or contact with other departments that were around because, look, cr- crime is not, it just doesn't happen in your city. You know, sometimes criminals will go outside of their city, outside of their surroundings and commit these crimes. So we tried to make sure that we were meeting on a monthly basis or we were having communication meetings to distribute information about certain cases. We would even have our cold case investigators. Now, this didn't happen until years after I had been in homicide, but we finally put together a true cold case team and uh, started distributing information on cold cases at those monthly meetings that we were having, just so, you know, if you had anything that matched or you had any information that you could relate to, we would be there to obtain the information. But this is a tough case as an investigator because you know he had something to do with it. He's practically writing a confession through his fictional book, but there wasn't any strong evidence or direct evidence. So that makes you worry about whether he could get away with it or not. And we don't want to give any away the ending, of course. You did include an update in the podcast, but what were your thoughts on the evidence? Yeah. So in addition to his writings in these unrelated civil suits, he wrote a self-published book called Graveyards, which imagines the murder of a little girl. And he does little to, con- you know, to hide that he's talking about real people in Greeley because he uses their names. Um, I don't think the Greeley Police Department had any idea when he wrote that around, I want to say 2008. I mean, the Greeley Police Department had just forgotten about him. I mean, they had no idea that he had released this pitiful little self-published book that was, Mm -hmm. you know, I read it from cover to cover and it's nothing but snuff. So one thing we should say to Chris, like in law enforcement, I feel like people don't understand this. So, you know, you might be working burglary for Mm -hmm. two years. And just when you've got an expertise in burglary, you get pulled out and you're working in vice. And just as you've got an expertise in vice, you're pulled out and maybe to do something else. Mm -hmm. So the nature, the transient nature, nature, oftentimes in departments, especially those medium and small departments, it's so tough on officers to follow cases, clearly, Mm -hmm. to have that continuity of communication from Mm -hmm. officer to officer. And then your expertise is always, you're always kneecapped, it feels like. Is that, is that true? So yes, yes and no. What you just described is, sounds kind of like my career. I started off in, in uh, burglary and I worked in burglary. And just as I was getting my feet under me, I saw this robbery case and then they moved me over to robbery. 
And then while I was working in robbery, I ended up solving a homicide case and they moved me to homicide. So as we as investigators, you know, we look at it as the progression of your career. That, that those are the steps that you should take. You, you shouldn't go into an investigative bureau and immediately start off in homicides because you don't have the knowledge or the expertise to work a homicide. But now we're realizing that, hey, maybe we need to figure something out. So when I came in through police work, we would always have just these sit down meetings and they were hours and hours long to prepare the next investigator that's taking your place. You would always talk about the open cases that you have. You would always pass off the information that you have. And hopefully if you were a decent investigator, you took great notes on where you left that case off. Some departments don't do that. Some officers don't do that. Some investigators don't do that. When I came in the homicide, oh my gosh, I got three cases and those cases, two of those three cases that I initially got are still open because it was just when I had that meeting with the investigator, whereas my meetings all lasted two and three hours, mine lasted an hour. And we talked about two open, no, three open homicide cases. And when you get the case files and you look at them and you see how messy they are and notes are shoved off into places and you got old gum wrappers and everything else in those case files, you know, it just kind of lets you know that everybody does not take the, and I'm saying that I was the best investigator. As a matter of fact, I worked with guys that were much better than me as an investigator, but sometimes everybody doesn't hold themselves to a very high standard. And, and that's problematic because what you do is delay justice when you don't hold yourself to a high standard in investigative work. And the person who takes over can only do so much with the resources that you gave them. And if there's not much in there and it's confusing and it's not connected, a lot of times you can go back and try to do the work. Maybe the witnesses are gone. Maybe now they don't want to talk the second time around. Things have changed. Circumstances are different. Memories fade. It, mm -hmm. it just makes everything harder. Makes it's it unfair harder. to everyone. Mm -hmm. And it's up to the head of the police department and also the city that's funding you or whatever, the county that's funding you mm -hmm. to get proper training. So are you following the International Chiefs of Police best practices on whatever it is that you're investigating Absolutely. so that you're not repeating maybe the same hard-worn mistakes that your supervisor unwittingly committed in his or her career because they're teaching you now to use right. their methods. Absolutely. So I'm always mindful of that. It isn't that I'm saying the Greeley Police Department is screwed up as entirely those individual officers' faults. It's not. I mean, it has to come from the very top. And it also has to come from the city or county that supports that police department financially. Absolutely. In listening to the podcast and the evidence as a defense attorney, you can see, okay, I see the connection. This person likely did it, but there's not going to be enough evidence for a guilty verdict. That's very much how I felt in this case. Uh, I just didn't feel like the evidence was really strong, actually. What did you think? So the evidence was entirely circumstantial, and there was a mountain of that. His statements that he'd made to people and his own writing implicating himself. There was no DNA uh, because you have to think that she was buried for more than three decades. So any DNA that was on her certainly was gone. And uh, there was, this was 84. So they, it was around the time 85 when police started uh, relying on DNA evidence. Certainly Greeley Police Department didn't. So there was no DNA evidence. Fingerprint evidence was inconclusive from her house, matching with the person who was arrested. So yeah, no physical evidence, only circumstantial. It was a tough, tough case to make. Mm -hmm. And you can see there was a mistrial. The prosecutors were not able to make the case the first time. I'm curious. And I know you're a journalist, an investigative journalist, so you're not probably asked this often, but I am curious. Verdict aside, do you think he did it? And if so, why? A lot of people have asked me that. I'm really, I want to be really careful about this. I will, I'll just, there's a mountain of circumstantial evidence that indicates that he did. He certainly demonstrated with proof, an abundance of people have said that he stalked them, that he physically hurt them, 
there was a woman who testified in the second trial that she didn't say that he sexually assaulted her, but I know that that was the allegation. We know that he had a propensity for violence. Um, is that enough for me to say unequivocally that he did it? Sometimes I still wonder. Sometimes I still wonder. But I know that cases are very convincingly made on circumstantial evidence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And clearly there was a lot to go through that would compel someone to think, yes, he did. That's interesting. You know, Fatima and I, we are very big on not indulging in others' pain just for entertainment value. So tell us, what have you learned from covering this story and what is the biggest takeaway for our listeners other than listening to a heartbreaking story? Well, you really said something so critical. And I think the suspect franchise, if you will, and, and season one, I would encourage people to listen to season one. It's an entirely different story. But at Campside Media, we're all long form investigative journalists. We do not believe in trotting out people's sad stories for entertainment. Mm -hmm. What I want people to take away, I guess, from this story is um, to think about Janelle as she was before she was kidnapped, as a real person to, I, I'm very uncomfortable generally Are with you? true crime. <laughs> okay. I mean, these yes. podcasts where you've got like the two girls giggling and talking about a murder is so repulsive to me. Mm -hmm. It just flies in the face of real journalism. I guess the takeaway from the story is to understand who Janelle was, to understand more about how the criminal justice system works and sometimes doesn't work. And, you know, I tried to answer <laughs> these questions as to why the person who was ultimately arrested was able to make these semi-confessions and go unnoticed. I still really don't know why that is. I really don't. I can say I don't like to indulge in podcasts that are just there to retell a story of someone's pain, someone's murder, and re-victimize families. But the reason I really enjoyed this podcast is because you were digging for truth. You are a truth seeker. That's something we say a lot about our listeners and our followers. They're truth seekers. They're not there to indulge. They're there to learn and not just learn how all the process works, but to also learn how to dig deeper and become a truth seeker and get to the root of things. Ask questions uh, to people, how to go about asking questions to people to get them to open up, right? Because there were a lot of instances throughout this podcast where somebody probably wouldn't want to speak. And you have people from the past coming forward to say certain things and open up because they're trusting you with this story because they want justice. And that is what's most important is justice for Janelle, the Matthews family. Because like you said, when we consume all of this, it does take a toll on us. So if you're just going to consume it for purposes of this is interesting to me and fascinating and I want to, I just want to hear something juicy like I'm reading a book or a, watching a TV show, then no. That's not going to benefit you. That's not going to benefit our justice system. Listen to it for purposes of what you can learn from it, how you can be a truth seeker also, how you can hold people accountable, including your local police department or your community. So that's why I really enjoyed the podcast. So thank you for bringing it to us. And also to remember Janelle, right. this beautiful little light, a spunky, opinionated, strong personality who went out in, in such an awful, ugly way that her light is shining elsewhere even brighter. And I pray that her parents have comfort. I know that they do because they are of the faith and that does help a lot of people. I can speak from experience. So prayers for them and everyone involved in this, but kudos to you, Ashley, for telling a really great story and, and getting everyone involved. Everyone go listen to Suspect season two, Vanish in the Snow, and you'll see what happens at the very end because Ashley does give an update on the last trial, and it's really good and compelling. So thank you. Thanks. You know, I don't know if you guys know that this, but I had um, open heart surgery during the uh, time. Here, I'll show you. Did not. That's so see wow. in the middle. See my scar oh, in the middle of in the middle of uh, reporting and recording 
um, suspect. I've, I've been a distance runner since I was 16 and I definitely took for granted that my health was fine. And anyway, I was diagnosed with a rare and dangerous congenital heart defect that I did not have any idea that I had and typically results in sudden cardiac death for people who are teenagers or younger. And how I made it to 46 is kind of a big mystery. So the day before, wait, yeah, no, it was the day after our podcast went out on Amazon's platform. I was at Stanford University where someone was cracking open my chest and stopping my heart and retransplanting this portion. The defect is it's called an anomalous coronary artery. It just means that my right coronary artery, instead of growing out of your right side of your heart, it was growing out of the left side. And because of that geography, it was being compressed. And so while I was doing all the reporting on this, like I had many, many months of like just really horrible testing, frankly. And also I became very scared to be alone with my daughter because I thought, well, what if I drop, you know, what's going to happen to her? Mm -hmm. And anyway, it was challenging, but I will say one thing about Campside Media and our team on Suspect. I didn't tell them right away because I didn't know that I would eventually have to have surgery. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when I did tell them, they were just... I mean, honestly, they're the nicest people I've ever worked with. It was the highlight of my career to work with these folks. Uh, It was a totally different cult. People at CNN are very nice too, but culturally, it was a totally different experience. Wow. At campsite. And anyway, I'm doing okay. (laughs) I have a few complications, but it's very wild. Wow. Wow. What a journey. What a ride. I'm so glad that you're here and you get to enjoy (laughs) your little girl still. A miracle. Yes. Amazing. My unsolicited advice to you both is to go get a real scan of your heart. Know exactly what's going on. Don't don't take for granted that, you know, you're going to your annual physical and your heart sounds fine. Just that's great advice. Don't do that. Seriously. I'm avoiding my mammogram right now, but I guess oh, I should don't do, do that. that. <laughs> don't do that, girl. Get in there. <laughs> it sounds so painful, but you're right. You're absolutely right. The best thing yeah. you can do is make that appointment, go get your peace of mind, make sure you're healthy for your family. It's super yeah. quick. It doesn't hurt. Uh, I mean, I have two a year because I have a high risk. Okay. And yes, okay. Girl. Well, I'm going to do it, Ashley. I, I, I actually have the appointment. I just keep postponing it. So I won't postpone this. <laughs> do not postpone <laughs> that. Thank you for that. So, Ashley, what's next for you? Well, I'm actually um, starting work pretty soon on another show, and it's, I can't talk too much about it, but it's about the death industry. Um, so funeral homes, it'll explore our, I mean, there's, it's grounded in a very bizarre story, but the larger uh, questions I hope to thoughtfully explore are, you know, what causes us to have these hanky feelings that we have about death. Mm-hmm. Um you know, obviously I had to, <laughs> I had to deal with that and I'm still kind of dealing with it, frankly. Um, but that's what's next. Okay. Um, I'm, yeah, let me, I'm, I'm really interested in that when I'm dealing a lot with that. Um, the way, I don't know if this is even remotely what it's about, but just the way our society looks at death and grief and everything else, I just, I'm realizing, um, it's so uncomfortable. For everyone, but when you're the person who endures it and you live it every day, there's that's that's life for you. And I think if we have a little more of those conversations, we can connect um, and help each other through that process. Because for now, it's just like everybody just wants to talk about what's light and fluffy, and they're just uncomfortable mm-hmm. when someone's sad. Let me let me pick you up. Let me let me lift you up and make you feel better. And um, that's not really the case for a lot of people on on in their journey of life and their loss. So exactly. And I I had conversations with Jennifer about this. Uh, you know, somehow we feel like you can only grieve for so long and then you have to move on. That's ridiculous. That totally misunderstands what grief is. It's always present. It just comes in different waves at different times. And that's, you know, it's sort of like don't put your grief upon me because it scares me because I can't handle it. Right. You know, it's it's just so, I don't know. I wish we had How about a better- we just teach society to handle it, to have those conversations, to say, talk about it, I'm here. Exactly. But it's interesting, I heard somebody describe it this way and it's the best way I can describe it in my life um, and, and what I'm going through. 
on a personal level, I just lost my brother. So I am so now the only child. Thank you. So I'm now, you know, the only child. So it's kind of transforming my identity and I'm going through a lot, but someone described it as, um, it's not that you just heal and grief eventually goes away. What it is, is at some point grief is driving they're they're in the driver's seat and then sometimes they're going to move to the passenger seat um at one point they may move to the back seat and guess what that grief may even move to the trunk but that grief is never getting out of the car so it just it depends on where you are and sometimes it'll you'll have a day where it's back in the driver's seat and sometimes you'll have a day where it's in the trunk but it's always going to be there in the car with you and it's just a matter of learning to live with it um and, and enjoying the days when it's in the trunk and you can be the driver and finding some peace and happiness. And I think described in that way also for somebody who's so heavy in grief, it's like allowing permission to have okay days, but also allowing yourself to feel without society's expectations of when it's time to move on. Yeah, but that is another podcast I look forward to. Would be Dude, <laughs> you literally just said something. You may see that line again or something close to it this coming fall. I'm going to borrow this that. Project. I know, right? That was <laughs> deep. That was really deep. So where can people follow you, Ashley, and, and follow what you're up to? Yeah, so, I mean, they can follow me on Twitter at AFONTS, A-F-A-N-T-Z, or they can just go to my website, which is, you know, AshleyFonts.com. I think that's probably the easiest because Twitter is devolving into a big mess. Mm. <laughs> Um, every also, one of our guests is saying that yes, at the end yeah. they're like talking about Twitter. They're like, mm, go to my Instagram. Do you have an Instagram? Uh, I do have an Instagram. So ashleyfonts.com is the Instagram for, oh, for okay. the show. So okay. yeah. And, and my last name is tricky. So it's F is in Frank, A-N-T-Z is in zebra. So, but if you Google me, like I'm sure. <laughs> you will Google uh, just Google you. her. You will yeah, find her go- easily, Google everyone. Her. That's what I'm she saying. Come back. Um, thank you so much Ashley this has been really great and Chris and I just really enjoy talking to people who are putting together some of our favorite podcasts and how it all came together and what their thoughts are on it and we really love the background information you give so thank you for that and uh, enlightening all our listeners and everyone if you haven't paused this already to go listen to it go and listen to Suspect Season 2 Vanished in the Snow and you'll get to hear Ashley tell the story of Janelle Matthews. And it's really good, obviously, because we just spent a whole hour plus on it. So. Thank you guys for having me on. Um, I love your show. So it, it, was, a, it was a privilege. Thanks. And family, there you go. Another great episode of the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. Tune in next week where we'll have another interesting crime and more cookie juice. We hope. <laughs> we um, we should have cookie juice next time. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> All right, guys. Y'all have a good night. Bye.